Weather today in the ground. I love you so badly. I could... They're solid plastic, so don't settle for imitation. But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. <laughs> Good evening, this is Lydia Cantrell, and this is the best of an Alan Smithy podcast. You give us 93 minutes and we'll give you 93 minutes of words. Tonight's double feature episode compares two quintessential American icons, the professional football player and the merchant marine sailor, and how they react under pressure in the year 1980 AD, by or Seal Hawkwings. From the 31st of December, 2010, a King Features double feature. This episode discusses Mike Hodges' Flash Gordon and Robert Altman's Popeye. Yeah! It's for every one of us! It's that for every one of us! It's time for the body, and every man, every woman, every child, every man, every flash! We learn everything to Flash. Every breed of Mongol live together in peace. Will we ever get out of your hands? I don't know. But we'll try. We certainly invite you all to stay. What do you think? I'm a New York City girl. It's a little too quiet around here for me. everybody. Welcome to an Alan Smithy podcast. My name is Matt, and I write at cinemachine.blogspot.com. And I'm Andrew, and I write at stopbutton.com. And this is our podcast where we talk about one good movie and one bad movie for about an hour. And uh, our movies this week, uh, this is like our King Features Syndicate special, because both of these movies were based on characters that came from comic strips originally and were licensed out from King Features. And King Features Syndicate is in the opening credits of, well, yeah, I think so. It's in the opening it's credits of one Popeye. movie. And um, in the closing credits, And in the closing credits of the other one. But they are Popeye and uh, Flash Gordon. And these movies have a crazy amount of things in common, even though they were made at different studios. But they both came out the same year, actually within a week of each other. Popeye came out Christmas, Flash Gordon a week before. Um, and, you know, they're both kind of... Um, um, I guess I'll I guess we'll list their similarities as we as they come up. But um, the interesting context that I think both these movies came out in is that like Superman had came out a year a couple of years before, and much like how after Batman '89 it was about ten years before they made other superhero movies for superheroes that you had heard of. Um, in the intermediary between Batman and X-Men, I think, was the next major one, there was, like, about ten years of comic book movies based on characters that weren't popular, that were, like, cult figures. Like, there was a Tank Girl movie. You know, there was The Mask, which was a big Jim Carrey movie, but it was based on a cultish comic book. Um, 
and stuff like that. And then, and then, like a similar thing happened between Superman and Batman '78 and '89, where you had like Swamp Thing directed by Wes Craven, and um, you know, Little Orphan Annie, I guess technically counts. She was a newspaper strip, probably another King Features uh, syndicate uh, lackey. But um, yeah, I don't think both. I don't think either of these movies, for as little as they have to do with Superman, <laughs> I mean. You know, Popeye even less. Flash Gordon, maybe you can make an argument. But um, I don't think they would have been made if it hadn't been for Superman, you know, to start with. So that's kind of the that's kind of the thing you need to understand to get, like, why these movies got made in the first place. Because, like, they're both really extravagant productions. And uh, they were both big bombs. That's a huge thing they have in common with each other. Um, but they... Neither of them, you know, I think they probably were just produced because they thought like, eh, you know, comic strip characters, comic book, close enough, Superman, this is probably money in the bank. But it was the opposite of money in the bank, as it turned out. Um, oh, and you know, like, we pick a good movie and a bad movie for this podcast, but um, the irony is that, you know, I figured Flash is the bad one, Popeye is the good one. You hadn't seen Popeye before. Right. Um, I'd never, but and I had never seen Flash in widescreen. And um, hey, the movie's actually not as bad as I remembered it. Watching it, you know, pan and scan on VHS at eight years old or whatever. I mean, it kind of has to be better watching it as an adult um, in widescreen DVD rip. And then Popeye, um, I really like Popeye, but it was sort of the flaws were, its problems were bigger than I had remembered. Um, and I don't think you can call it a bad movie, but you can make a case for not calling it a good movie either. Oh, well, at least Flash Gordon is maybe a little bit worse. <laughs> yeah. It... Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon's mistakes are... Flash Gordon's problems aren't as interesting as Robert Altman's... The problems in a Robert Altman movie, put it that way. Yeah, Flash Gordon's kind of artless, where Popeye is artful to... Uh... Arf, arf, arf. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I had not... I, I mean, I've seen Flash Gordon oh, many, many times over the years. Um, but I think I... Did he stay on HBO a lot or something? No, I... Mean, I, I um, or were you actually renting it? <laughs> I, I mean, I rented it once, but, you know, I had my whole Laserdisc period, and Flash Gordon was mm -hmm. one of those ones where... You need to watch it widescreen almost. Yeah. So totally, it's it's incomprehensible without widescreen. So you know, I watched it widescreen and that sort of thing, and so when you need to you need to you need to see how big those cheesy sets are, because otherwise they just look like really crappily small cheesy sets. Yeah, I mean, you need really good audio for uh, the dubbing on on Sam J Jones or whatever his name is. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, and Popeye had never gotten around to seeing because, you know, it never, it never came out, um, I never thought to see it on video almost, um, and then by the time I got around to seeing it on, as an adult, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think, um, it just was always on the list and not really something I'd ever seen, um, along with a lot of Altman's. So I just sort of always put it into that category as opposed to uh -huh. one of the, you know, the 
sort of blockbuster superhero movies you subject yourself to just so you can make some nasty comment to somebody talking about it. I mean, I always just sort of figured I'd see Popeye when I got around to seeing a bunch of other Altmans. So, mm-hmm. and of course now seeing it widescreen is a completely different experience. I imagine. Oh sure, yeah. Because I, mean, I can't um, believe I ever watched it uh, pan and scan. Because it's Panavision uh, Altman, which is. Um, are we talking about Popeye now? Well, we're now. We got to go <laughs> back we to Flash Gordon. Are, are, we're still okay, talking about right. both, but we gotta we gotta decide on one. I think to start with. Do you sure. want to start with Flash? Um, kinda. Okay. I guess it doesn't matter. Well, we can do but, Flash. Uh, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I mean, the it's um. The widescreen of Popeye, it's maybe not as necessary to making it watchable as Flash Gordon, but um, it has the it has the same effect as like a lot of other movies I've seen pan and scan and then widescreen later, which is that when you're watching a widescreen movie in pan and scan, even if it's not particularly well directed, read Flash Gordon, um, it still makes the movie feel like claustrophobic just to watch <laughs> because everything is literally being like clipped off at the corners and you know lots of shots that aren't close-ups get turned into close-ups um so yeah flash gordon i mean it's not well directed or anything um the screen you know but another reason that i uh, appreciated it more now is that um the script is this, I mean, the whole thing is conceived as like very camp, you know, very high camp. But um, most of the the camp isn't really in the production design, I guess. I mean, it's very phony looking, but um, you can sort of picture it being done straight, even with the phony special effects. But you know, de- in defense, the uh, the phony special effects are kind of complemented by the camp screenplay, which was written by um, Lorenzo Semple Jr., which um, I mean, the reason he got this job is because he wrote uh, the King Kong remake for Dino De Laurentiis previously. Actually, um... De Laurentiis produced this. Oh, and, but sort of more to the point of camp, he was a writer on the Bat... Oh, Barbarella, yeah, Yeah. that's right. And the the Batman uh, 60s show, which is what I wanted to mention. So, I mean, it's got, you know, it's... It's easier... You need to be an adult to pick up on a lot of the camp sexual innuendo and and stuff. <laughs> it makes it more it makes it more bearable than when you're a kid when it just seems incredibly boring. Which is how I remembered this from seeing it as a kid. It's just boring. Now I don't find it as boring. Oh, it's still drag. But. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a camp value to um, those two, um, Melody Anderson and Sam J. Jones, even if he's dubbed. Um, sort of being these romantic leads just because they're both so bad. Um, yeah, they're so bland. They're just pretty faces. <laughs> yeah, it's... But, I mean, the, I mean, it's fun. I mean, like, I listened to the Mike Hodges, the director's commentary on this, and um, um, he's really like an Englishman with typical English disdain for America and Americans. And the fact that he thought his protagonist was really dumb <laughs> definitely comes through in the movie he's not treated with any respect but not even in but not but not it does he doesn't go far enough with that lack of respect actually because if he did then he could have turned him into like bruce campbell before bruce right. campbell 
But he treats him with just enough respect that he just kind of comes off as a dope. Yeah, just as sort of a big dumb jock who... He plays American football against aliens (laughs) when he has to fight them. Aliens are really bad costumes, let's not forget. Yeah, you know, after the backlash of, you know, when people started declaring Tim Burton's Batman movies to be camp, like, that's when I start getting defensive about camp. Um, But I can definitely see how people really lost faith in this movie as soon as that ball fight happens, because... That's the first thing that happens. I mean, that's the first overtly ridiculous, campy thing that happens in the movie after they get to um, Ming's planet and um, and they're in his court and he's you know he's all sees them and Gordon starts tackling them with a ball and then the Queen music is rocking out. Um, people are well within their rights to be offended by that kind of campiness because the que- the question is the question is kind of and we're gonna have to ask ask this question of Altman's Popeye is like who is the movie for um and it's sort of like too the camp is too embedded in dialogue to be for kids I mean kids don't get camp anyways I mean it's like if you're a kid and you're watching the Batman 60s show you probably love it at face value, like it's meant to be taken seriously. And then you get a little older and you realize how much, you know, how much innuendo and stuff there was in that. So it's the same with Flash Gordon, but um, it's also not really like exciting enough um, to be, to excite kids or it's kind of, this movie's kind of like for someone who's like, too old for this kind of thing, but can't help themselves. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's why, and that's and that's why there's that's why there's so much sexual innuendo, basically. I think that uh, had this come before Star Wars, not so much Superman, because Superman's a totally different approach, and, and right. Flash Gordon does has more to do. This is more a Star Wars ripoff, right? Yeah, and I mean, just the lack of action versus something like Star Wars is incredible that they didn't sort of notice things were going that way. Um, yeah, I mean, is... this came out the same. This came out the same year as Empire Strikes Back, and it's such a pre-Star Wars movie. It's so pre-Star Wars, but it's also um, pre Raiders, uh, which. Mm-hmm. I think for that, something that, that, that like kind, yeah. that kind of set set piece every reel, <laughs> right? Exactly. And the thing is, is that Raiders, of course, is based on old serials of which Flash Gordon was one, and they still don't they don't seem to. There are some connections to the serial. Um, if you start watching Space Soldiers, which is what the the first serial is is or Space Soldier, I think, and that's out on DVD. Um, it looks like the movie for a second, uh, just the way it opens yeah. up. The first, the first, uh, you know, ten or twenty minutes or whatever, are the same setup as the very first, you know, the first two, the first two days of the comic strip back in the thirties right. of so- Zarkov grabs Flash and Dale and blasts them into Ming's palace, and he's all sees them. And so, the daughter's all, but father, I love him. Or I want him, as it is uh, in the case of this movie. Yeah, and you gotta wonder just how much fun Lorenzo Sample had with the script, thinking sort of, there's no way they're gonna let me do this in a kid's movie with, you know. But, I mean, De Laurentiis is a, uh, 
he is, if you ever read, I'm not sure how they sort of deal with him now, but I, I read the making of the King Kong book once, and uh, mm-hmm. it, he really did not like the idea that anybody would ever tell him <laughs> that he couldn't do something. Um, and he he had a very interesting relationship with critics because, um, yeah, he sort of started the whole populist make something good movement in some ways in the seventies. Cause if you look at the seventies, right. Like around King Kong, he's, you know, definitely the critical establishment was like, how can you remake a classic? And he was saying, um, you know, the, the people are going to put this one over. The people are going to love this. You'll see when well, it comes out. <laughs> he, um, yeah. And his big one, um, before King Kong was Mandingo, which is very well known now, but not as a good movie. And it was insanely popular. People were, you know, waiting to see there were lines around the block to see it and um the critics abhorred it and all that sort of thing and he's like well you know what people are waiting around the block to see it so it, mm-hmm. it it's just strange that he uh produced flash gordon to some degree having no sense of how to you know make a successful uh, a post post Star Wars movie. Well, I, I mean, mean it's the, yeah, it's post Star Wars in that of the science fiction aspect, but I think that I mean we'll we'll talk about it a little with Popeye. If Superman this, sort this, of this, did, yeah, you know, change the expectation. Oh, no, that's true. Right, you'll believe a man can fly. Um, Flash Gordon doesn't make you believe anything that's happening for even a second. Yeah, Flash Gordon, you'll believe that we had some really cheap... uh... Flash Gordon, (laughs) you'll believe that there was a lot of coke going around. (laughs) Um, You'll believe that we cashed our paychecks. (laughs) You won't won't believe what you're about to see. There you go, even better. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe not in a good way. Um... Yeah, there's like Lorenzo Semple gets interviewed on the DVD and he says like about his screenplay that like he pretty much did, you know, he he put in a lot of stuff he didn't expect to make it. And then when Laurentis asked to see the script, he had it just translated into Italian and Semple was like, but Dino, I mean, don't you care about the the interplay and the dialogue and all that stuff? And he's like, no, I just, you know, want to make sure that the story works. So yeah, I mean, forget about picking up on innuendo or anything. Not that they would have excised too much. I mean, whatever. Like, they got to the point where, like, Mike Hodges was shooting Ming's daughter being whipped on her back. Uh, and and that scene where Ming's daughter is, like, crawling all over Flash in the cockpit of the spaceship. And she's like, gentle, darling. I mean, it's just, I don't know. Did Did people think that, like, kids were... I guess I guess they did. They just thought that kids weren't going to pick up on really obvious sexual innuendo, and that parents wouldn't, you know, parents wouldn't care. And I guess they didn't, because it's not as if this movie caused a public outcry. But um, it's that thing of like, you know, it seem it seems more for adults who are still kids at heart than for <laughs> kids, especially especially after Star Wars. Oh, and the other thing Lorenzo Semple talks about on the DVD is that like. De Laurentiis, he describes as being obsessed by the success of Star Wars, and he put it in those terms. And between this and um, and Dune, four years later, you can totally see these two as his like 
best efforts at creating his own franchise of Star Wars movies. Because um, both of them are kind of Star Wars-esque. Dune a lot more so. I mean, <laughs> Dune was Dune seems to have been made like in response to the failure of Flash. It seems to have been De Laurentiis' response to his own failure with Flash Gordon <laughs> to, to create a successful, uh, you know, competitor to the Star Wars series. But it's uh, Star Wars. It's it's almost like he um, it's almost like he produced Flash Gordon, having only read like. Pauline Kael's review of Star Wars or something, or some cri- or some critic who, you know, pointed out how it was based on old Saturday Flash Gordon, mat- you know, matinee serials, and he was like, oh, shit, I'll just go straight to the source and make Flash Gordon. And of um, course, well, I mean, he did buy the rights before Star Wars, and I... Oh, that's isn't, right. Isn't there some story that Lucas wanted to make Flash Gordon, and he couldn't because Delia Rentis had the rights, or something like that? And he, yeah. Delia Rentis had bought the rights for making, uh, you know, a Fellini Flash he wanted Gordon. To and, do Flash Gordon, yeah. And I think which that was... Might have been, <laughs> which might have been something more akin to Robert Altman's Popeye, at least, in terms of being an interesting failure. But um, My question would, of course, be, would Fellini have had such strange sexuality? And uh, I almost think it would have been more toned do down think- in his... Do you think? Do you think? Do you think they felt obligated to include as much uh, innuendo as they did because Fellini might still <laughs> do it at the last minute or something? Uh, I, I don't, don't know. know. I think that. I mean, simple. You know, he he knew. I think he probably knew who the audience was, regardless of whether or not they were going to actually pay to go see the movie. He kind of knew what he was gearing it toward, and that sort of campy yeah. sexual atmosphere is you know I don't think it was I don't think it was <laughs> I don't think it was fair of him to write the script that he did for <laughs> De Laurentiis when De Laurentiis was expecting a success and he was clearly writing something that was destined to be a cult movie and kind of aware of that too while he was doing it Well I mean he wrote Barbarella so I think that <clears throat> Oh yeah yeah, and if this had come out just a few years after Barbarella, it might have been fine. If it were the exact same movie, it might have been fine. But um, I guess we're, we're we're going a little too easy on it right now. Let's talk about stuff that doesn't work, right? Uh, um, okay, so we've got a bunch of bad acting. Um, yeah, I really I think um, I think the the strongest Superman connection to Flash Gordon is that um, is that uh, Dale. The woman who plays Dale uh, is really trying hard to emulate Margot Kidder's performance in Superman. Um, but I mean, Margot <laughs> Kidder—it would be like if Margot Kidder were crossed with um, the the blonde bimbo from Superman Three, as well as being <laughs> Lois Lane. Um, um, yeah, I mean, during the football scene that we mentioned, uh, is she? A tra- she's not a travel agent, is she? What is she? She's supposed to be a travel agent, oh, but she, she starts che- agent. she starts cheerleading him. Yes, yeah, she starts while he's cheerleading him the during the um, the awful yeah. sequence there, and I mean it's just it's just incredible. <laughs> uh, that was the point where I was watching it this time, and I'm just like, oh, I forgot about this. And, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and I guess the movie never really does anything that bad again but the the mark is made <laughs> it, set, it sets the tone 
I mean, in um, some ways, it gets better as it goes along, as you get away from Flash. I mean, because I'm not sure how the comic strip works. I'm not sure how the serials worked. But the way the movie works is that it turns out that the universe is ruled by Max Van Sydow, and he's got a really cool costume. Um, though the way they shoot it, you just know that a better a better cinematographer would have made us look a lot better. Um, and he, he rules from the planet Mung. Is it the planet Mongo? Mongo. Yeah. All of Mongo <laughs> is sort of a broken up planet where you have separate kingdoms and stuff like that. And so, yeah, this, this movie thinks that planets are like chunks of just literally chunks of rock with like stalactites on the bottom. It's a little confusing. Because they leave the they leave Planet Mongo or Flash does and he goes to the Hawkmen planet and the Woodsmen's planet, um, and they're just yeah they're just like they're not really planets. So the movie's kind of confused there. Um, they're kind of just I don't want to I don't know if confused is the right word. It doesn't care. <laughs> just doesn't care. You, you know Stephen Hawking's didn't consult on this one. Um... Mm-hmm. Not like when, what was it, uh, Spielberg made Minority Report and he was really worried about it showing an accurate, you know, technological possibility <laughs> of the future or something. They weren't too worried about... An accurate, an accurate future. Um, so, but the thing is, is then you, you introduce the other characters. Uh, Brian Brian Blessed is the Hawkman. Um, yeah, and apparently, like, he really... Uh, <sighs> Apparently this is like one of his more popular roles over in England where this movie – where Flash Gordon was kind of popular apparently. Um, I guess they got it. Um, of course, nobody did 70s camp quite like the British. Um, yeah, Brian Blessed is awful. He's the leader of the Hawkmen and he's enjoying himself too much. He he thinks – he you can tell he thinks it's a big goo, but – you know, Max von Sydow and that costume and everything, it kind of reminded me of, um, in your review of Batman 89, you described Nicholson's performance as phoning it in, but not contemptuous of the material. Right. And you put, and that's and that's sort of what von Sydow's doing, where, like, he's phoning it in as far as he's, like, you know, letting the costume and the makeup do the acting, but... But he's he's taking it he's taking he's taking his craft seriously. Brian Blessed doesn't in this movie as the leader of the Hawkmen. He doesn't seem like an actor. He just seems like some guy they brought in off the street, and and he's just like visibly enjoying how goofy the whole thing is. And that that takes you out of the bat movie in a bad way, I think. Yeah, and then there's Timothy Even Dalton, if, <laughs> who's not bad, I guess. No, but I mean kind he's, he's giving. He's kind of he's kind of he's kind of too good. For this movie, actually, even at this early phase of his career, he's too good for this. Yeah, and so once the movie sort of centers on him a little, um, it just it just gets really kind of almost worse in a way. As it gets better, it gets worse. Um, well, I hate I hate any scene where he has to he has to be with Brian Blessed. I mean, they do have a lot of scenes together, and uh, kind of the the gulf the gulf of their acting calibers is uncomfortable to watch um did you notice i don't know if you read the credits but did you notice how many uh how many women there were with with one only one name 
like strippers. I think they got a lot of. I think they got a lot of exotic dan- exotic European dancers and stuff. Uh, uh, no, that's, <laughs> be, that's a big thing among of, uh, Italian Alice. <laughs> among Italian actresses, a uh, lot of lot of one name. Oh, okay. I'm I'm sorry, ladies. <laughs> I didn't mean to call you whores. <laughs> it's not like uh, what's I mean, his face Top- made it. Top- Topol's not a whore. I mean, Zarkov is is you know is fiddler on the roof. He's Tevya, and he just goes by Topol. So now, this is what's this weird about him. the cast is that they make a big deal about having this international cast. Who is that for? Who cares? International audiences, I guess. And I think that's what it is. I mean, that's what um, was it the. Uh... I don't know, Golan Globus guys, they always they always said you get all the international people in there to guarantee foreign sales and stuff like that, but you know, I mean that's still it's not like Hollywood today hasn't stopped doing that. They'll still put like some German actor who you haven't heard of but who's huge in Germany to you know, have have it do a little better over there. True, but, but I think that for Flash Gordon they should have the concentration should have been on making Flash Gordon work. Um, yeah, and there's just... I guess that he's 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 a cipher in his own movie, and he's such a cipher that they didn't mind dubbing over almost all of his performance with some other actor's now, voice. Is there any of it that is Sam J. Jones? Because I've never I, seen I, I him in anything. I don't. I don't. So. I don't know. I mean, because his voice itself is just generic, heroic protagonist voice, or something. So he really, yeah, he's a cipher in his own movie, which is a complaint people used to make about Batman, but there was a point to that, whereas here there isn't. It's just how it turned out. The um, the Superman comparison brings up something else. that For Superman, they, it was a big deal the, getting the flying working, right? Um, yeah. For yeah. Uh, Star Wars, getting the special effects working, that was a big deal. There's nothing yeah. that it seems like they had to get working for Flash Gordon, and so it's almost like without right. the um, those those two movies made flying and spaceships finally look real, and this says screw that, they're gonna look fakey, fake, fake, fake. And I think that uh, just a little hint. I mean, even or a little preview of the the Popeye uh, section. They they put a lot of uh, work into the production design, it, making some part of the fantasy real, and there's just none of that here. And I wonder if it's something that, I mean, now we don't worry about it because they don't have to worry about it because they can CG and whatever, and so that makes it real. But it's almost like without that sort of concentration, you're you're lost. That, uh, yeah. I'm uh, sure Hodges not caring one bit about the movie either was a bit of a problem. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. wasn't he something like the 13th, 8th director hired yeah. or yeah, something? Yeah, they went, they went way, way, way down the list. Yeah. Because, because other directors had, you know, seen Star Wars and seen where things were going. <laughs> and uh, were like, De Laurentiis, uh, Bar- you want me to make a Barbarella-type movie? Well, you know that movie Star Wars just came out, right? People aren't going to go in for that anymore. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how nuanced it is. <laughs> People don't want nuance now. They want kick-ass special effects. Um, yeah, you know. Um, but what's even interesting he... about that is that 
for DeLaurentis' King Kong, his big deal was promising a life-size King Kong robot, which, you know, only appeared in one section of it and never actually worked this way. He promised it would and all that. But he cared about some sort of spectacle, convincing people that there was some sort of spectacle here. And that was one of the, you know, trademarks of De Laurentiis, just as the showman. And so, I mean, this just, this movie just stands out as not being very, um, De Laurentiis in any way that any of his seventies work is. And I know it's only 80, but it's very weird to have somebody totally change. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen, Oh, you okay? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen as many uh, De Laurentiis movies as you, I think, but um, there are, um, I don't know, there are a couple of things that are stylistic of him that I think of as being stylistic to him. Number one is the gimmick soundtrack, the music by Queen, because he did that in his other Star Wars knockoff, Dune had music by uh, by Toto, and then, uh, of course, a couple of years later, the infamous Maximum Overdrive had uh, music by ACDC. And, you know, it does work. It is good. It's just, you know, kind of also it's better than the movie. So, like, when it's when it does when it does get used, it's like the movie really needs it. And then it kind of goes away for a long time in the middle of the movie. Um, and that's when it drags the worst. But um, <laughs> one of the um, probably my favorite use of it is um, is when the drums and the guitar and stuff are just kind of driving and um flash gordon is crashing his ship into the wedding um that ming is where ming is about to marry his girlfriend and um okay yeah the scene does have brian blessed talking to flash in the cockpit before he bails and that's awful 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 um but there's also the fact that you're watching a scene where a guy crashes a spaceship into a room and the spire on the end of the spaceship impales the bad guy. And there's no way in hell that would work if you didn't have queen music backing it up. It's like, like the perfect example of, of the queen music, like sell selling you somewhat on the, on this, on this nonsense. And it's also like Mike Hodges, like he's, he never did a special effects movie before or after this. So like when, Max von Sydow gets impaled by the spaceship. It's just like they just cut to it. They just cut around it to make it happen. There's no actual, there's no actual uh, spire going into his belly shot. Sorry, fetishists. Now I think that's kind of funny that Ming's big plan is to marry the girl, and there is some pretty funny dialogue in there about uh, the wedding vows. That right, the wedding. Yeah, that's 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 good camp. Yeah, he'll he'll be as as long. It's implied that once the wedding night is over, he'll kill her or something like that. And I mean, it's just yeah, it's a lot of fun. But you vow not to blast her into an airlock, (laughs) at least until such time as you are done with her. (laughs) I do. Um, Yeah. So I mean, the question is, what what kid is going to get that at all? I mean, come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Um. The other thing too is that like yeah that is kind of that is the last scene I mean that is the scene where Flash defeats Ming and um, I think I think uh, doing research on this movie I learned that um, they were gonna have something a little more elaborate than 
Ming sucking himself into his magic ring rather than fight Flash after getting impaled, because that's a little anticlimactic. But um, that suit, you know, Max von Sydow's costume, like, weighed 500 pounds or something, and he couldn't lift a sword. He wasn't going to do a sword fight. He's an old man. So. Right. Hence the kind of anti-climactic climax. And the, the only, which doesn't bother me as much as the fact that simply by impaling Ming, getting Ming to whisk himself away with his magic ring, um, that saves the Earth, which is the reason that him and Dale and Zarkov ended up on Ming's planet in the first place, is because Ming is using his evil powers to rain destruction on the earth because he's a jerk and um and just you know there's like there's no switch that they pull there's no like doomsday machine that they blow up it's just like the thing happens with ming and then like literally this robot servant who we have no reason to believe wouldn't zap flash shows up and instead of zapping flash it goes congratulations flash you've saved the earth and he literally jumps up, looking at this, looking at the camera, and and yells, "Yeah!" <laughs> cue cue more Queen music, <laughs> easing the pain. Yeah, I mean it's kind of incredible how how bad Queen's taste in movies is. I, I think <laughs> um, because, as I understand, at least how they did, how they got involved with something like um, Highlander. Um, was that they, they, they saw the movie and they, they really liked it and so they did the soundtrack. And I assume it was something similar with uh, with Flash Gordon because at the time they would have been, you know, the most popular band in the world or something. So right. they, they didn't have to do a Flash Gordon soundtrack. So wanted to. They wanted to. And, and, and they saw it and they thought, wow, we could do the soundtrack to this. Yeah. They were like, wow, this movie really needs our help. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking speaking of which, um, you know, the opening, even if people haven't seen Flash Gordon, they've probably heard Queen's theme to Flash Gordon. And um, over the opening credits, it's pretty awesome because the opening credits are a montage of uh, the original comic strip art, which looks really great. And it's, you know, quickly edited around the around the Queen music and uh, makes you gets you in the mood for a better movie than what's about to come. Yeah. Um that 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 use of comic book um art in the opening credits to comic book mov- movies like it's it's actually been done so little and it's so good in flash gordon that you kind of kind of makes me wish that like every comic book movie did that um but then the only examples i can think of are uh, tank girl which is directed by rachel talalay and return of return of swamp thing which is directed by jim winorski so there you go and I would almost wonder if Wynorski made that choice himself. I've listened to the commentary for it, um, so I'm not sure that... Uh, <laughs> he doesn't mention it, yeah. He probably would have mentioned it. Yeah, I, I don't know. If it I, his idea, he yeah, probably exactly. would have. <laughs> and, and that movie opens with... Um, that sets the comic book montage to uh, Born on the Bayou by Creedence Clearwater Revival. So yeah, you have to wonder if they they got not, the idea for even, classiness. It's not, <laughs> it's not even an original song about Swamp Thing that they paired that with. But um, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, we 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 the whole idea of whether or not you could have done a good Flash Gordon with this 
I, I, I'm pretty sure you couldn't have. So, mm. I, I, not saying that you couldn't do a good Flash Gordon. I just don't think with the collection of um, the between the script, between Hodges, I, I'm not sure that I think Hodges is sort of capable of. Yeah, because the direction's like not seriously. The direction's not bad. It's just 100% competent. And for some, if you're gonna make a wild, colorful, flashy movie, um, you should have some a director with a little, uh, little visual panache. Yeah, and I mean, is it is he just disinterested? Does he just yeah? So it's um... he, he, he definitely you can <laughs> he thought he was superior to the material. What's time. so funny is that um, I once heard um, Danny Boyle talk about how he uh, brings sort of a fantastic element to his movies, and that what he does is he starts in the traditional British manner of intense realism. And so if you if you watch a British movie from the, the 60s, and not, you know, when you were talking about the British appreciating camp, I, I immediately thought of all those, what was it, carry on or whatever those things were. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, yeah, they, they really could have cared, like Benny Hill and all that. That kind of thing. They could have cared less. But if you watch something like Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, Tony Richardson stuff, it starts out with this very realistic um, type thing. And yeah, Hodges doesn't even bring any realism to the beginning of it when it, it, it might yeah. have been kind of cool if the opening had actually been real. And then they went into the sort of high camp yeah. aspect of it. Um, but before But before they even get to the planet Mongo, you've got Topol chasing his lab partner around their um, lab with a gun. Talking He's about not going to kill him, though. Like, come back here. Munson! Munson, come back! <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's It starts starts camp, stays camp. Um, anyways, it's not the worst movie. No, um... It pretty much represents a lot of... Um, a lot of missed opportunities and a lot of... Um, kind of uh, a lot of overconfidence and lack of effort. <laughs> <laughs> lack of effort. I like the lack of effort. I mean, there are some really good performances. Um, Vancito's got, you know, he's not in yeah. it enough to sort of make the movie worth seeing for him. No, um, but he is, but he is, he is good. And, you know, his sexy daughter with a possibly implied incestuous relationship with him. Uh, she's cute. She's good. Yeah. Um, cute outfits. Um, Dale's annoying. Flash is annoying. Brian Blessed is annoying. Topol's annoying. Uh, oh, Richard O'Brien is in is in one scene. But again, these are not these are like details. These are not reasons to see the movie at all. <laughs> the soundtrack's really good. I guess yeah. I guess my recommendation is listen to the soundtrack instead. And picture and imagine a movie, and the movie that you imagine in your head is going to be better. Yeah, um, but no, I mean, I I think everybody should see Flash Gordon at least once. Um, no, that's true. It is it is an important it, it's an important piece of movie history, as far as you know, the beginning of special effects being taken seriously, and how movies that didn't take special effects deadly seriously after Star Wars. Uh, didn't quite know what to do them with themselves. Now, and I'm trying to th- sophisticated camp wasn't going to save it. 
or even unsophisticated camp. Was there anything pre-Star Wars like this? Uh, sort of post-Barbarella, uh, but... But pre-Star Wars? But pre-Star uh-huh. Wars. I'm thinking of... That's a, good, that's a good question. I mean, that's a good 10-year period. I'm thinking of there was... I mean, obviously there was 2001, um, and then there was Silent Running, and... Um, but Silent Running took itself seriously. Exactly. I don't. I can't think of anything else that didn't take itself seriously at this point. Dark Star. I mean, <laughs> hey, that's another another secret reason for Dark Star's greatness. So yeah, I mean, it's just kind of weird how um, they just thought this was the way to do it, um, or that it would work, or that it would be popular, <laughs> or that it would even make its money back. And it's um, for kid. And I mean, Barbarella. Did that really get a G rating when it came out? I can't. Well, I don't know, but it definitely. I mean, that's a that's a good point. Is that people knew that that was a put on, you know, kids movie that was actually for adults. I mean, and, even the but even the and even the and even even the character in the comic strip were, was an adult comic strip, so people knew. Right. People knew. Um, Flash Gordon tries to have its cake and eat it too. And, <laughs> In that it tries to be just enough like Barbarella for the parents and just, I don't know what to say, enough for the kids. <laughs> now, the other thing I want to know is, is were there Flash Gordon action figures? I don't know. There are now. I was at a comic book store a few days ago and they've got like retro doll, kind of not really hard plastic action figures, but like dolls with felt clothing that you can buy now of Flash and Ming. But is it Flash Flash or is it Flash from the movie Flash? I think it's no no it's from the movie. Yeah. Oh, wow. But this was but but no, I mean this didn't have a this didn't have any kind of merchandising around it. Unlike unlike even Dune which did have, you know, action. Star Wars. Well, of course, I Star mean... Wars <laughs> Star Wars-esque action figures and play sets and spaceships. You get, you could get your own, you get your own spice cruiser or whatever. Which, in some ways, you know, I, I think that they would have been better served doing blue velvet action figures in some ways. <laughs> um, but yeah. move, uh, okay, so I think we're get go see Flash Gordon. I mean, you know, why not? Yeah, it's, why not? It, yeah, if what you've never you, seen it, you, you know, it's got great music, and you know, come on, huh. you, you'll probably get to, you'll never know what it's like not to see it widescreen. So you'll be. Hum, you need to see the opening titles, and you'll be humming that theme song for a long time. Oh, the opening! I mean, it's just the opening titles promise such greatness, you know. It just really right. does. Um. Um. So, um, a week a week after Flash Gordon came out, another King Features Syndicate movie came out, and it was Popeye. Only, um, only it wasn't the Popeye people were expecting. Um, You know, people were expecting something like the cartoons, like with a lot of spinach eating. Um, (laughs) And they they weren't expecting um, a kind of throwback, turn-of-the-century communal um, story in which Popeye is an outsider in a crazy town full of crazy folks behaving wacky. And and um, badly to Popeye. 
Let's not forget that. Right, right. They definitely don't care for the outsiders. Um, but, you know, um, this movie is also not really a kid's movie that wasn't produced for kids because, well, let's see. Um, like Flash Gordon, it has original music, original songs by a popular artist. In this case, it was Harry Nilsson, who's, okay, he did he did that album The Point, which had an animated TV sh special, but he's not known, like, as a, you know, kid, a pop, he's not a popular recording artist with children. He's best known for his, you know, songs in Midnight Cowboy, right? Um, and then, um, and then it's, it's directed by Robert Altman, who's not a kids movie director, and, you know, I think, I think a lot of critics then and now take, have taken the lazy way out of saying that, you know, the movie doesn't work because Robert Altman is, you know, an adult, a director of movies for adults, and he's trying to do a kid's movie, and he's dumbing himself down, and, and that doesn't work, but he doesn't, okay, maybe he dumbed himself down a little bit in terms of content, but as far as his direction, the movie's incredibly well-directed. I mean, it's totally par for course for what he was, you know, doing at that time. Um, and then, like, the third element that doesn't really make it good for a kid's movie is that, um, I guess it was, uh, well, I don't know, what, what is the most detrimental? Um, it was produced by Rob, it was produced by Robert Evans, who's, you know, like Altman, not a maker of entertainment for the whole family. Um, it's, it, I can't, I can't really say that it's a problem that it's like two hours long or whatever, because I mean, that, that's just, right. No, I mean, thing. um, while flash Gordon, the problem is that the dialogue is too, I mean, this said Mork, right. From Mork and Mindy. So presumably, um, mm -hmm. it, it should have some friendliness to it, but even in just the regular scenes, there's just a certain level of, maturity to it that it's sort of you have to be patient for it um you have to you're you're not getting the payoff moments and this is of course from 1980 so it's not like today where what the the kids go see the uh the Harry Potter movies and I'm I'm saying kids very generally there and they wait for their moment from the the movie or from the the book to show up right because yeah, you know the only <laughs> the only moment people are waiting for Popeye is for him to eat spinach and and kick ass, and he does kick some ass um, before eating spinach at the end of the movie. Finally, but not really enough. That's not what the movie's about. The movie is about Altman doing a comedy about a weird community of weird people, and Popeye, and then like Popeye and Olive Oil and Wimpy and Bluto are just kind of in there while that's happening. Oh, and, you know, I mean, but the, the full context for that and the reason I'm mentioning, you know, people were expecting the cartoon is that um, the screenplay is by Jules Pfeiffer, and, you know, like you say, it's kind of too witty for kids, but too corny for most adults, perhaps. Um, but his intention, he said, I think at the time or after, was, you know, he really appreciated the old comic strips that this was based, that Popeye was based on. And he appreciate and all of the 
zany characters of Sweet Haven apparently all were characters in the comic strip. So what people thought was a really unfaithful adaptation of a cartoon was actually a very faithful adaptation of a comic strip, but that's not what people wanted, and the movie kind of doesn't care. I mean, Right. I mean, it's Aldman in the sense that he's doing his thing here. I'm definitely doing his thing, and he's not that concerned with his audience, which is not something you can do with a kid's franchise, possibly. I mean, were they planning on doing another one of the... It's just... And then it's, you, not as ob- it's, not as, it's not as obvious as it was with Flash Gordon ending with the end, question mark. But, I mean, when you think about um, Shelley Duvall spent a lot of the um, the 80s uh, with her fairy tale theater uh, video things, which were sort of literate entertainment for kids, which... But with it, adults who... I mean, with with actors who adults enjoyed, so it was entertainment for the whole family right and, and so it's just kind of like that's not how you really make a popular kids movie in a lot of ways yeah or even or even i mean being generous and not being condescending a movie for the whole family you know in the right. best in the best sense of that trite old phrase you know um this one's <laughs> like flash gordon it's a it's a kids movie for adults but um it's for smarter adults with smarter children inside them. Yeah, um, it's... Because, um... I mean, there's just, you know, the screenplay from Pfeiffer is all... There's not much action. There's not much fighting. There's a lot of bumbling around and goofiness and funny faces, but all of the humor... Most of the humor is in, you know, goof... You know, uh, not goofy, but wordplay and, you know, malapropisms and stuff... And, you know, Jules Pfeiffer is very good at that, and he's a cartoonist himself. He has, you know, a sensibility. Um, it's a sensibility that takes um, that takes patience and understanding, though. And um, I think you said before we started recording that, like, you know, you found the movie kind of to be, like, too much <laughs> in a way. Um, I've seen it more than once, and I can tell you it gets better on repeat viewings. Um Unlike Flash Gordon, but there is there's 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 a lot to intake. There's a ton of dialogue. There's a the Altman's frame. His compositions are very busy. There's a lot going on, what? and it's very and it's very quickly edited too. There are a lot of really fast cuts and stuff. Well, um, the beginning of it is much faster than sort of the I won't say the middle, but if you think about it after. Um, once they get the baby, the mm-hmm. whole sort of pace of the movie changes. Um, yeah. Because it becomes, it becomes more... It becomes kind of episodic, and you don't really know... Like, nobody has anything that they're... Re- like, Popeye shows up at the beginning, and he says he's looking for his father, but you don't know that his father is going to turn out to be the unseen Commodore at the end of the movie. I mean, you can guess, but if you don't see that coming or you don't care, then the whole middle of the movie is they're taking care of a baby. Yeah, and I mean, one of the one of the problems for me, of course, is that Shelley Duvall is incredibly unlikable. I never, yeah, I never thought of it that way, but um, she is, she's a huge bitch in this movie. Olive Oil is a huge bitch. 
And I mean, she's, and they even are aware of it in a, you know, she's, they don't pay their taxes. I mean, this is, you know, the movie opens with this lovely sequence. We haven't talked about the set. They built the town. Uh, what's it called? They, they Sweet Haven. Sweet Haven. They built, they built this place on some rocks in Malta, and they built it so good that it's still there. You can take a trip to Malta right now, right now, and go to, go to Popeye Town. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. You know, the set is, and it's, it's Altman Panavision. It's just beautiful stuff. Oh, yeah. And Another, so there's and, reason to see it, Panavision. The movie opens with them, Popeye coming to town and sort of walking through town. So you get to see this just amazing set and all that. And then, yeah, um, and that's probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. Like it, it, it feels magical. It, um, yeah, because it's, really, it's a really nice Harry Nilsson song, and and the camera's following him through town and you're seeing it for the first time and it's re- it really makes you feel like uh, oh we're comparing it to Flash Gordon again it really makes you feel like something wonderful is about to happen although to be fair this is further into the movie than just the opening credits <laughs> and so then um, but then so Donald Moffat shows up uh, for you Thing fans um, and he uh, he he collects taxes on basically every single thing you do in Sweet Haven is taxed because the Commodore is really this bastard. But anyway, um, and it turns out that Olive Oil's family does not pay taxes, and it is because she's going to marry Bluto, who is the Commodore's agent, and all this kind of thing. And I guess I didn't really think about it that hard, but there's a scene where she talks about that where she talks about how, oh, you just think that I don't have to pay taxes, and that's the only reason I'm made. And so, you know, the sort of materialistic, you know, read of her, she offers it to the... And it's just, it's incredible that they really are completely unconcerned with making olive oil likable, and I'm not familiar enough with the the cartoon even to know whether or not that's how it was in the cartoon or even in the comic strip. Maybe it was in the comic strip. I mean, but in in the cartoon, I I don't think she had much of a personality one way or another. Wasn't she like Although a she... school teacher or something? I don't know. He had those nephews. <laughs> I'm I'm confused. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't get into into comparing the other incarnations of Popeye. But um, uh, I remember in Down and Dirty Pictures, Robert Altman has an anecdote about casting olive oil, and he says that like. Don Simpson uh, wanted to, who produced many of like Bruckheimer's movies and kind of ushered in that Top Gun era of filmmaking. Um, Altman has this hilarious quote where he says, "Like, yeah, he wanted uh, he wanted Gilda Radner," and I said, "But Shelley Duvall is perfect." And he's like, "Well, I wouldn't want to fuck her." And <laughs> and, then, and then like and then his next and then his <laughs> and then he says like. And then he says, "Yeah, so that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of mentality that Don Simpson was bringing into Hollywood, and um, I don't think, he, and uh, he's a bastard, and he didn't suffer enough before he died <laughs> because he died of cancer or something at some point. So he, he spits. Robert Altman spits on uh, Don Simpson's grave over the casting of Olive Oil, which is quite funny. But you know, I thought of that because it's like if they had Gilda Radner, who is like Miss." sweetness and playing a little girl on SNL and stuff like would they have played her as as much of a bitch or can you can you get is it is it like the shining where it's like 
Only a woman as annoying as Shelley Duvall can play this annoying housewife part. Yeah. We, um, want, we, we want our audience to hate her. <laughs> well, I mean, originally when they started discussing this, and I mean, that, that that's the other thing that makes it really interesting is that, you know, Dustin Hoffman was going to play Popeye. Yeah. And then he didn't want to do it because he didn't like Jules Pfeiffer doing the script, so he backed out, and then they brought in Robin Williams, which is, I mean, yeah, I don't really like Robin Williams, but I guess I was impressed. Hey, I, I, I avoid Robin Williams movies, um, not just the Oscar bait, but the quote-unquote funny stuff like Cadillac Man. I mean, I have always avoided that, but I think he's good in this. Yeah, I think it's I, well, probably his... In some in some ways, it's like his one good role because he's playing a cartoon character and he can just kind of lose himself in in that. And his physicality, it's you know, it's a physical role, but underplayed most of the time because he's not fighting in every scene. Um, he's he's tolerable in this, unlike yes. most Robert Williams movies. And so, I mean, but it's just a very interesting. Uh, you, you don't really think of that as a trade-off, you know? It's like you don't you don't. <laughs> You lose uh, Dustin Hoffman, so you get Robin Williams. I mean, that's really not. Um, um, it, I've always thought of the Robin Williams casting as the least Altman thing about it. In some ways, that that's 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 Altman that's probably, sort of probably true. Yeah, Altman. Um, when you think about any of his casting, I think until Preda Porte. Uh, yeah. I mean, he never had. I, well, I guess Julia Roberts did the cameo at the end of the player, but he never had anybody as big or like that sort of populist entertainer. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah, I mean, because Robin, this was kind of famously like Robin Williams' first major movie role. He was in a crappy sex exploitation sex comedy before this called "Can I Do It Till I Need Glasses," but um, he. Um, you know, he was really popular as Mork for Mork. Um, so there were, like, a lot of hopes around him in this movie. And, um, yeah, Altman doesn't cast, like, up-and-coming next big thing uh, actors in major roles, usually. One has to wonder, I mean, this was a Paramount Disney co-production, and uh, Mork and Mindy was Paramount. And mm-hmm. I think they had a little bit more synergy. Yeah, that that would explain it. Um, <laughs> in a lot of ways, because if you think about you know Star Trek and all that kind of thing, they they, they always have had a lot of synergy. And so, well, uh, yeah. Paramount Paramount owned uh, NBC, right? I don't think so. Oh, maybe I'm getting. Okay, sorry. Yeah. I guess I'm getting confused. I think they just. I think they just. You know, they did Happy Days. They did um, Laverne and Shirley. Sort of all of those, and so I mean, there was a there was an interest in this, and so, but no, I mean, he he never does a he never does a bad job in it. He goes, and, um, he, goes with, he goes with his regulars, and that's you know, <laughs> that's why his movies have such dang big casts because he loves him some character actors. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, uh, Paul Dooley Popeye. is wimpy in this. Right, Paul Paul Dooley is wimpy is is great, <laughs> and it, he, it, he totally you know that's just a regular Robert Altman character actor doing um, doing his thing. I'm watching it, and I'm like, that guy looks really familiar. And I knew Paul Dooley was in the opening credits and everything, and there was somebody else. Oh, wait, hold on. Right, we always spoil stuff for people. So Ray Walston. 
uh-huh. uh, plays uh, Popeye's dad, the Commodore. Right. And um, I saw him, you know, I saw his name in the opening credits, and and I, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking. Um, during the movie, I'm like, well, wait, it's one of those movies where it's like, well, where is this person in the, uh, in the cast? You know, when are they going to show up? I mean, that's, yeah. Sometimes with police procedurals, depending on, you know, the guest star, I'll be like, well, we know that they didn't do it (laughs) because, you know, this guy hasn't shown up yet. And so until he shows up the movie, you know, we're not really there yet. And so, yeah. you know, the Ray Walson thing is sort of like that. But once I realized it was Paul Dooley as Wimpy, I mean, it's just this. And Wimpy has a very, uh, he gets introduced in the uh, burger shop uh, get, yeah. song he, sequence. He, uh, he, he tips his hat to Popeye in the uh, coming into town sequence as well before okay. that. And, he's um, sort of, he's the one, he's the one person in Sweet Haven who will, uh. We'll say we'll good talk day to strangers, to yeah. Because you know, to no. to to, to borrow to, to borrow from them later. Do they ever explain why Sweet Haven is such an unfriendly town? No, it's just I don't is. think it's they do. Island. It just is. Yeah. It's an island town. It's an island town. What more explanation do you need? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, they, some of the characters, some of the characters that uh, that are in this movie. Um, taken from the comic strip it's really like turn of the century immigrant humor stuff which is hilarious which you would never see now and of course you know i'm thinking of richard libertini as a geezel the peddler who's jew jew jewerson (laughs) and he has and and he actually and there's actually a moment uh in the uh coming to town sequence where the music kind of dies down and he haggles with popeye over the price of some carrots and tries to jew him down a bit it's great. <laughs> and this is not oh, a kids movie. There's a, there's, a, just... oh, there's a there's a blind man who can who's like selectively blind, possibly pretending to be blind. Um, and that's more 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 on PC humor. It's just almost like now is Popeye a famous bomb? Uh, yeah, yes, it it, is. it, it, it qualifies. It, it 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 bombed out completely and. Well, I mean, it sure as hell killed Robert Altman's career for ten years. True, and what what brought him back was the player of, which yeah. So um. Okay, because I just when you think about this era of film, there really aren't a lot of movies like Popeye or Flash Gordon. Or super. It's not like today when, you know, yeah, when, sure. Some what, what? What can you use as an example of some bomb? You know, I mean, there's just always some good example of it. I mean, this is the only thing like this. Nobody else was doing this. Um, yeah. And so I, I think that I, uh, when we were talking about Fellini's Flash Gordon, um, at some point. This is the closest I think to date anybody has gotten to having some weird director do some insanely 
popular icon. I mean, it's like you're going to get Quentin Tarantino to do Mickey Mouse the movie or something. I mean, it's yeah, this like, is right. This is this is what people imagine when they make up rumors about Tarantino directing a Friday the Thirteenth movie. And it's so. Like, but I mean, because I mean, the inevitable result of that is that it's more that director's movie than it is, you know, an encapsulation of everything that people know and love about the icon. Um, and Popeye is Popeye is a Robert Altman movie through and through, and it's kind, of, you know, it's enthralling in that way. But it's enthralling. This is the you know who is this for really? Because I mean, at the time, who would this have been? They they had really good faith that like they were gonna get all the kids and all the families on Christmas and they were gonna get House Altman fans. <laughs> yeah, and it's and that and that and that there wouldn't be a conflict of of expectations with those two groups of people, but both groups and then both groups end up being disappointed. <laughs> and by the way, I think the only reason I probably like it more than you is because I'm both an Altman fan and a Popeye fan. Yeah, so that was like, that was my big issue during the movie was when I'm like, I don't like Popeye. I think that's I some of, of my problem. <laughs> if you do, though, you can kind of pick and choose uh, <laughs> what to appreciate about it. You don't have to see it as a whole so much. You can kind of go on YouTube every now and then and watch your favorite <laughs> scene or something. Well, I mean, just the opening sequence, um, that alone is fantastic. You know, you know what part but- of... You know what part of makes that opening sequence so great is that um, the Harry Nilsson song that he's singing, if you listen to the soundtrack album, which has um, never been released on CD, unfortunately, but if you listen to a rip of the the vinyl version or something, um, all of the songs that Nilsson wrote turned out very differently in the way that they're used in the movie in that it seems that Altman like rewrote the lyrics on the spot to make the songs more about what was happening in the scene. And the coming to town scene is the best example of that because the song is called blow me down. You know, it's one of Popeye's old catchphrases and the album version. It's just kind of a song about, well, it's about the same thing that it is in the movie, you know, coming to town, being a stranger, but you know, having a relaxed and cheerful, you know, I'm just a stranger who blew into town kind of perspective on things in the in the scene itself like he's singing he's singing lyrics that are specifically about like what he's looking at (laughs) and and what he's doing but they're still rhyming and they're still fitting into the tempo of the song um and then but then there's like uh, but then sometimes that doesn't work, and I guess we should talk a little bit more about the movie's problems now. Um, yeah. Even though, even though, even if it's our good movie, because like there's an example, um, you know, the song that Ray Walston is singing when uh, Bluto is tying him up. It's not easy yeah. being me. Um, that's like a full song in the soundtrack album, and it's a good song. And to make it work in the context of the scene, they shorten it to like less than half the length and they muck around with the tempo a little and it does it ends up not sounding like a good song at all definitely not one that you'd remember and that's a big and that's kind of it it does more harm than good that they that altman had nilson write these songs before he knew where they were going to go into the movie yeah and the one that always that stuck out with me was bluto's song yeah, yeah. Um, and 
also because Bluto, the voice of the actor. Now, what is who is the actor? The guy's name's Paul Smith. He was in Dune. He was also in Midnight Express as one of the torturers. I think that's probably what he's most known for, if anything. Um, he, um, his voice does this not. This is the work. only. This is the only. This is this is the only kids movie where someone was cast from a movie like Midnight Express. That's probably not true, but yeah, his he's not. He doesn't have a singer's voice, let alone let alone an actor's voice, really. And he's it just, just does not match. Guy. And that's just a big problem that it just does not match, um, mm-hmm. and it's it was really distracting. Um, and Nilsson even and Nilsson even kind of wrote the songs for non-professional singers because they are kind of rambly, talky songs, but it doesn't always quite work. It definitely doesn't work with uh, uh, with Paul Smith the way it can with um, Shelley Duvall or even Ray Walston. Right. Like that, that, uh, that thing that Ray Walston, uh, you know, his song about kids near the end of the movie isn't even a song. It's like a, it's like a comedy routine that just that's just set to music, and it's just Ray Walston ramble, uh, rambling and ranting. And now, and, uh, yeah, Shelley Duvall's uh, song, of course, is something of a minor has become something of a minor cult classic after. Uh, after uh, P.T. Anderson used the whole thing in one of his movies, in Punch Drunk Love. Oh, is that why it's famous? I've only seen Punch Drunk Love once, so... Yeah, the he, one even, about... he, used the actual Duval, he uses the actual Shelley Duvall recording near the end of the movie. Oh, That's how big, well. just, to show, just to show off how big an Altman fan he is. Of course, he was the backup director on Altman's last movie, but as far as I understand, Altman never, they never needed to use him. Um, but anyway, so the cast is interesting, too, because there's familiar faces that, um, I mean, in some ways, Robin Williams is not a familiar face, because while they don't do the whole... Well, it made its money back. I'm looking at the budget right, or the budget versus the revenue right now. It made its money back. Mm-hmm. Um, Just didn't do what was hoped necessarily. I mean, it made fifty million dollars in 1980. That's. Hey, look, I I heard of <laughs> long before. Okay, I can't say long before I saw it, but I can tell you for sure that Popeye's reputation was that of being a flop, and it was that reputation that kept Altman from working in Hollywood for about yeah, 10 oh, years. Yeah, no, no, I know. But, um, you know, um, Linda Hunt's in it. Um, Linda Hunt from, who won the Academy Award. This is her first, her first role, actually. She won an Academy Award a couple of years later playing a guy, which is, as far as I know, still the only cross-gender Academy Award winning thing because it's not like she was playing a transgender person in the year of the living dangerously. She was playing some guy and she won an Academy award for that. Um, but then the, you know, I mentioned Moffat and you mentioned Libertini, but, uh, Bill Irwin is in it. And I couldn't remember what I saw this guy from. And, uh, it's, it's buzz from, uh, Hot Shots, which I haven't seen probably in you know fifteen <laughs> years, but I, mm-hmm. I remember him. 
And then Dennis Franz is in this. Oh the, yeah, Dennis the first Franz. the first scene <laughs> where you really get to see that Altman does not know how to shoot an action scene, and that is one of the big problems with the movie is, is that eventually there gets to be a, it requires a certain amount of physical stuff, and yeah. I mean this isn't I always, just the action. I always, I always notice I always notice how awkward that is. Like, I mean. Towards the end, you know, as you might expect, Popeye and Bluto fight each other over olive oil and sweet pea. But um, prior to that, Bluto uh, takes his captives to this island where there's some supposed buried treasure, and Popeye and crew are following him. And they're following him in like, you know, steam a, a rickety old boat or something. And it's it's um, it's hard. You can't really direct a chase scene with two boats. They're too slow. <laughs> It's not exciting. I read the Mad Magazine parody of this, and like they did complain about the lack of spinach eating, and how dare they imply that Popeye never liked spinach. Um, but apparently that's true to the strip. Anyways, I don't think people were upset about that. Maybe that's what they latched onto, but they were sort of more upset that there wasn't more fighting in a Popeye movie, because that's all he does, really. I mean, look at those arms. That's, that's what he does. Right. <laughs> and there's like three fight scenes in the movie. Um, and one of them is a boxing scene that I don't think they would have had if Rocky 1 and 2 hadn't just come out. And that is just the most awkward scene. I mean, it is, it's just a boxing match flop in the middle of the movie. And they, they work it into the script a little, right? Like, yeah. They you just... know, the brothers wants <laughs> to get the money back because they're in trouble now because Olive right. Oil's not going to marry Bluto and all that. But, I mean, it's just this really strange... And it really segments the movie because immediately following the boxing match, you know, you're going to the, the racetrack, you're going to the whorehouse. I mean, it's a mm. Disney movie with hookers in it. I mean... <laughs> yeah. Uh... <laughs> You know, we mentioned all the sexual innuendo in Flash Gordon. Um, Popeye doesn't really have sexual innuendo except for um, except for um, Popeye telling the whores that he doesn't want to get a venerable disease. Um, but it does have. Um, let's see. I wrote down some phrases like a like a real censor. Um, Haul ass. Uh, that's what that's what poop deck. Pappy, Pop, Popeye's dad, is telling them to do when they're chasing Bluto. Haul ass, haul ass. Um, some kids, when com, Popeye's marching to the Commodores, he, they say, give him hell, Popeye. Um, when Bluto's singing his song, he refers to himself as so damn mean. And in that song, there's a, there's a couplet where, uh, where he says he's meaner than... And you hear other people gasp, and then some of the background singers go, that's it, that's it, with the implication that he said that he was meaner than shit. Um, and then at the end of the movie, when uh, when Popeye's boat catches up to Bluto's, um, they crash land, and everybody gets thrown off, and Robin Williams actually does say, oh shit, as he jumps off overboard. It's quite amazing that that, that made its way in there. And... I mean, this is Disney. Disney spent the entire what nine, early nineties dealing with the fact that their employees were so pissed off they were inserting 
dildos <laughs> into backgrounds and things like that. Yeah. I mean, so it's a period when Disney was okay with this. I mean, they 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 co-financed it and they handled international distribution. So they had yeah. a say in this, and I mean, how did they? How did they not notice? And if they noticed, how did they not care? Because it would have been it would have been really easy probably to to take out, but it's in there. It's so weird. Um, oh, you know what? What am I saying? The biggest sexual innuendo in the movie is is Shelley Duvall singing about Paul Smith's dick size. <laughs> uh. Talk. talk. Talk about something. Talk about something for the uh, for the grown-ups in the audience. Yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> He's large, large. Oh, and then large. that immediately following this sequence, and uh, is the, her engagement party, which I always was curious: was Papa actually invited to the engagement party, or does he just sort of assume he's invited? I think he assumes he's invited. Okay. But then the, he and Olive Oil sort of meet up and they, they find the baby. <laughs> it's so unfortunate because, you know, they're on the set and it's it's they're shooting at night. And because I assume uh, just the specific specifications of the set. <laughs> you were talking like Popeye. <sighs> the, the specificities. The specificities of the set. Allowed, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd need more help to, to do it intentionally. <laughs> um, we should have really done that for the entire episode. And then, but only for Flash Gordon, then for Popeye, talked like Sam J. Jones. Um, you see that Altman is not going to be able to direct action in the scene where Popeye and Olive Oil oh, yeah. meet up. Right. He, he just because, can't. Are you talking about the that uh, Bluto sees them and knocks Popeye out? Even before that, I'm oh. I'm saying right before they find the baby, that's he Altman just doesn't know how to do it. It's just kind of crazy because he he can handle almost everything in the world, but when it comes <laughs> right. to this really simple uh, sort of choreography, he just it just it just falls flat. You know what? I would I okay now I know what you mean, and I would say that. You can see that even earlier, and yeah, the problems with choreography include the problem like um, slapstick choreography because after that great – well, I don't know. I mean he kind of understands it to the degree that that, you know, coming into town sequence is so magical, but then that's followed by Popeye, you know, renting his room at the olive house – at the oil house – um, and there's all this really unnecessary and really bad slapstick around, you know, Shelley Duvall, like, wrecking his room when she shows him in. Mm-hmm. And that's when you realize, uh-oh, uh, there's going to be some problems in this movie. And it's just a really, um, that sort of sequence is not something you would have to ever worry about in a comic strip. Um, and that if you were to do it in a cartoon, it would be totally different. And so just the way Altman does it, it's (laughs) the way he does it is to add a lot of cartoon sound effects in post. (laughs) Because, you know, you're thinking about all the great slapstick and, um, 
I don't think there is any all great slapstick where everything is slapstick, right? Right. Like when you look at the Marx Brothers, they're slapstick, and the rest of the world is some semblance of reality. Um, You know, Buster Keaton runs through something. He's brings that with him as sort of the tidal wave. He's not well in a world of it. I think the Three Stooges might be the only pure slapstick that okay. really works. Um, but, you know, those were short films. Um, and that actually reminds me of something Flash Gordon made me think about, which is that, like, Flash Gordon probably wouldn't be so bad in small doses. Um, but because it's got this huge middle section that lags, it, it really, by the time you get to the end, you're just like, all right, let it end already. Um so, like, if De Laurentiis had uh, ironically released the Flash Gordon movie as a as a serial series in front of his own movies, that it might have been wildly popular. <laughs> and, of course, Popeye cartoons are seven-minute cartoons, and the comic strips are daily newspaper comic strips. So when you get to the length, uh, yeah, it gets to be a bit of a problem. But yeah, I mean, Altman... Um, which, isn't, which isn't to say that he tries to make it pure slapstick at all. It's just that the slapstick scenes don't work at all. Yeah, and it's just... It's it's unfortunate that he's... It... People really... I guess, I guess I wanted this to be the good movie because people are harder on this movie than they should be. And there's a lot to appreciate. Um, now, who's hard on it? Because I've heard from Altman fans... Yeah, to see it, of course. Oh. Of course, you have to see it. You know, I mean, you know, it's not it's not great, but you got to see it as an Altman fan. Um, mm. And so, uh, I just feel like Altman's one of those I, those people yeah. who, if if you're not an Altman fan, it's 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 not like I'd put much yeah, you stock can't, you can't, in, can't rec- in what they you can't, say. You can't. You cannot recommend this to a non-Altman fan. That's true. But I don't know. If that's your experience, that hasn't been my experience. I've had the opposite experience. And I think with Flash Gordon, I've had more people recommend it and speak well of it than it deserves. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. I just, you know, a while, within the last month and a half, read somebody talking about Flash Gordon and how, you know, they've really come to appreciate it. And I'm kind of like... Are you yeah. kidding? Like, <laughs> re- yeah. really? It's like two hours long. It's, um, I mean, that's kind of the thing is that I think with Flash Gordon that once you get the adult camp, there's nothing in the first twenty minutes or whatever that the rest of the movie isn't just repeating itself on, except. <laughs> Some of the Ornella Moody. Uh, okay, yeah. But I think not that. Not, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but at a certain point, when watching Flash Gordon, you know, at a certain age, you realize that Mike Hodges is not doing a good job, and that you know you're really not getting anything out of this. As a, right. Yeah, but as opposed to Popeye, where it's Altman. The only Altman movie that I think that I, I, I walked out of saying I never, ever, ever want to see this again was um, Cookie's Fortune. Mm. And that was, you know, 
geez, what, like 12 years ago now? And, and at this point, I want to see Cookie's Fortune again, just even if it's bad. Because, yeah. I mean, Altman is at least interesting in his failures. And, um, you know, versus somebody like Hodges, who, you know, I don't care. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't care if Croupier is no good. It's not interesting in the way it's no good. It's just no good. I mean, you know, Altman not being able to do slapstick, it, it's interesting to look at it as why yeah. can't Altman do this? Why, you know, has he really never done any other comedy? Um, and then the Panavision thing. I mean, Altman sort of, after he got run out of Hollywood, he ran to TV and he did TV yeah. movies and, and things like that, that are now available, I think readily versus, yeah. um, you know, even six years ago. And then he came back for the player where, you know, he was making a movie that he abhorred and, uh, you know, but he still managed to make sort of a completely different thing. And I think that with Altman, it's that he never was a, a young Turk, so to speak. Yeah. He was all, I mean, at the time of Popeye, he would have been in his fifties, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, he never came at this stuff when he was that. I mean, he didn't get started until he was late thirties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so I guess um, <laughs> with Popeye, I'll recommend seeing it, but I'll also recommend um, tracking down the Harry Nilsson soundtrack for a for quite a different experience, but also a really good one. And a lot of those and a lot of the songs play better listening to the full versions on a on the soundtrack album than they do uh, in the context of the movie. Um, Flash Gordon, though, just the soundtrack. <laughs> no, we recommended people see it at least once. Oh, okay, and just once, just to get, yeah, just to get it. I don't know if you, I don't know if I recommend that you see them together, though. <laughs> right. Like, we, because, yeah. I mean, it was just, it was a little bit too much, so to speak. I was just like, ugh. I, I, yeah, that's why I recommended you take as much time off as possible between them. <laughs> Yeah, just you need a little bit of time between these. It's just a little because they're both. I think you. I think they could both be described as wacky. <laughs> Wrong ways. They're both pretty wacky movies. <laughs> yeah. Good for better or worse. Yeah. So. Um, and next, speaking of wacky. Yeah. Next episode, we got a couple of comedies and. Um, and uh, it's one of those instances of a funny comedy with an unfunny sequel. We were watching Airplane and Airplane 2, the sequel, um, which were made within a short period of time of each other with a lot of the same cast, but not the same writers, directors, and boy, oh boy, does that make a difference. And the second one doesn't have Leslie Nielsen, but... But uh, it has William uh, Shatner. But it has and, William Shatner. Doing, I'm going to do an experiment here that, you know, airplanes, I saw them as a kid, so eventually I think they sort of ran together, you know, in certain ways. And sure. Like the forget, trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. so I'm curious as to how it'll play out here. Yeah. Um, hey, airplane came out in 1980. We're really, <laughs> really, really stuck on that year, aren't we? Yes, it did. Oh, well. When did Airplane 2 come out? Was it 82 or 81? Did they get a full year? 82, I think. I don't think they I don't think they quite cranked it out that quickly. 
Um, so yeah, Airplane and Airplane 2, uh, next episode. Um, for an Alan Smithy podcast, this has been Matt. And this has been Andrew. And thanks for listening. Oh, you don't have to be no fish to tell when you're floundering. What am I, some kind of barnacles on the ding your life? I ain't no doctors, but I know that I'm losing my patience. What am I? Some kind of judge or lawyer? Uh, maybe not, but I know what law suits me. <laughs> so what am I? Uh, I ain't no physicist, but I know what matters. What am I? I'm Papa, the sailor. And I am what I am, what I am, and I am what I am, and that's all that I am, because I am what I am. Got it? I think so, yeah. And I've got a lot of muscle, and I only got one eye, and I never hurt nobody, and I'll never tell a lie. Top to me bottoms, from the bottoms to me top. That's the way it is, till the days that I drop. What am I? 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 To be or not to be, who's asking? I can open up an ocean, I can take a lot of sail, I can lose a lot of waters, and I'll never have to bail. The coast come out of gas, grab the whale by the tail. What am I? What am I? What am I? I am what I am! Popeye, the sailor! I'm Popeye, the sailor! I'm Popeye! We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Best of Alan Smithy Podcasts. This is Lydia Cantrell. Good evening.